Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. America, bonjour, I, candidate Hugh Hewitt, back up in Studio North. Dr. Larry Arn is, uh, is my guest today, and Dr. Arn has been with us for the last five weeks as a teacher of students at Hillsdale, but I dragged him out of his summer repose to come and do an update with me about many things. Dr. Arn, are you spending your summer in D.C., in Michigan, or are you out on your big bike harleying around the country? You know, I've been almost exclusively in Michigan, and I haven't been on my motorcycle and yet, it's kind of fun. It, uh, uh, I've decided that I've, I would prefer not to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Most days, that's the problem that Fetching Mrs. Hewitt experiences with me. I'd rather read a book. And uh, whatever she wants to, I'd rather read a book. Uh, Dr. Larian, I wanted to catch up with you because we are at a moment of extraordinary crisis in the Republic. The Supreme Court has handed down a decision, West Virginia versus EPA, that says, administrative state, stop. You may not make it up as you go along. And yesterday, the president of the United States said he's going to make it up as he goes along. And you always have said for the the decade we've done these shows, fundamental things are afoot. I don't know that the media noticed that. They're still talking about Dobbs, which is actually not that big of a deal in terms of uh, what it will mean for most people in the United States. It's just absolutely nothing unless their legislature changes it. But if the administrative state just ignores the United States Supreme Court, that's a big deal and nobody notices it. Yeah, well... Uh, we're down to this bad place. Only the voters can save us. <laughs> and uh, that's the right place, ultimately. But it's too bad that the, that the ultimate place is the only defense we've got anymore. Uh, I do sense, by the way, that people are coming to understand a lot more than they used to. Uh, I think they're not confident that the government is okay anymore. And now they think maybe... It's a conspiracy against them, and there is a lot of that there. So, yeah, I think, and the court uh, has provided cover to, I mean, just think, in all these recent decisions they made, what they're doing is stripping off cover that the judicial branch offered to the legislative and executive branches for doing things they didn't want to own up to, right? I mean, it might be that it's a really good idea to give a bunch of bureaucrats the power to decide how we generate and whether we generate power. But to do that, our representatives have to say that's what they're doing. I mean, I, I think they can't even do it in that case. But what's going on instead is they take uh, a little thing. Well, it's a big thing, actually. This EPA case, That's there's a very wide power in the EPA to adapt to changing conditions, right? And and because they're given goals, and they can do a lot. They just they can't just do anything, right? They can't uh, decide that a law written uh, to fight smog is now going to fight is now going to be used to fight carbon, right? And that's the thing, you know. Smog is not just carbon. Smog's 
we we you know we live in Cal. You live in Cal. Well, you don't live in California anymore. No, I don't. I'm up in Maine right now, and I'm, most of the time I'm in the Beltway. But I used to be on the South Coast Air Quality Management District. I know all about smog. Yeah, that's right, and that's you know that's stinky and unhealthful, and been greatly improved. And has it been done in the most efficient way and in the way that preserves uh, the control of the people over the government? I don't think so. But it's good, well, you know. But don't 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 mistake. It's good that the air is better. Uh, yes, and and it, it, we got it done because of the Clean Air Act, and the Clean Air Act was wrong often until it was right. But they did when I first moved to California and first met Doctor on in 1989. There were days in downtown LA you couldn't see in front of your six feet in front of you. You couldn't see the people you were with going to the USC game, uh, which had been fixed in advance by the Trojan people, but you couldn't see the field. And that's gone now because of the Air Quality Management District, which did which did a lot of good, and then it kept doing a lot, and most of it was bad because it's the administrative state and it never shuts down. It just gets bigger. Uh, so, uh, you know, what is... So, the regulatory approach... Or, or, let's just let's try to distinguish... I will try to state what I object to. Uh, I don't object to laws. Uh, I object to the regulatory state. And how does it proceed? Well, first of all, you could say, this is a, a Holman Jenkins, who's a very brilliant man who writes in the Wall Street Journal, just wrote an article about this. You could say the following precursors to smog are harmful to everybody and so if you emit them into the atmosphere, you've got to pay a fee. And, you know, if you make the fee high enough, nobody will do it. And then you say, here's an auction. What am I bid? And what that will do is that will, uh, that will concentrate the sources of pollution in the most economically advantageous uh, activities. Yes. And that, that, is, is that clear? Because that's very important. Yes, it is. It, it's the market-based approach to reducing pollution. It's been abroad for 30 years, originally uh, introduced by liberals who have been denounced now as insufficiently Leninist in their approach to the problem. And that's, there you go. And, and that, now, the alternative approach is the one they use, mostly, back, at least when I, was, I, back when I had the misfortune of paying attention to them. Yep. And that is... They make a list of every industrial or, or pollution-emitting process in the industry, in your homes, you know, how much does your lawnmower emit, stuff like that. And they uh, study up all the alternative ways of going about it, and they compel the use of a certain way. Uh, you have to put this device on your engine. You have to use this process to paint you know, and so you can just see, just, you know, dr dr drive down through L.A. and look around. It's very complex, and a huge it amount of stuff is going on. And so they're going to take testimony, and they're going to hire experts, and they're going to design how the economy is going to work in detail. Well, that's obviously, in potential, a despotic power. And so you've got to step away from that. And the, the only reason... They haven't done that thoroughly. Is because they, they they're just not enough of them. And, and I, occasionally they overreach, Doctor. I I don't know if you recall when the AQMD tried to stop burning fires on the beach, and mm -hmm. they had a rebellion on their hands. 
because they had overreached. Not unlike what happened uh, in the shutdowns. And I want to talk about Michigan's election. But before that, I want to ask for your, your thoughts on my somewhat risky analogy. The terrible tragedy that was Uvalde had 400 law enforcement officers, each of whom was individually brave, I'm quite certain, paralyzed as school children bled out and called 911 and they did nothing. Uh, 400. That is, to me, an analogy of the administrative state paralyzed by the inability of someone at the top to do anything and hamstrung by their routine deference to authority that ought not to have been given in the first place. And, And therefore, the public health authorities in this country are not unlike the law enforcement officers who did nothing in Uvalde because they're just paralyzed. They have no idea. They made mistakes and now they're paralyzed. And I just think that that image of the 400 LEOs outside of the schoolroom is going to have a long-term impact on America in a lot of ways far beyond law enforcement. What do you think? Well, the society could break down, right? Uh, I've been telling a story lately. I once went to an economics conference in Guatemala and, uh, 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 the the people who worked the college, college the registration and stuff like that they were college kids and they were very attractive I, li- I liked them and so I gathered about eight of them and took them out to dinner and we had this great long talk and you know to them the United States was a magical place and they just manifested that wanted to talk about it and I said why is it a magical place and they said everything works right <laughs> now. Does everything uh, still work? <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> what year was that conference? Uh, that was in uh, 2008, something like that. Everything works. Everything wow. works, you know? And see, they're living in a world where things don't work, right? Nothing the bus works. is yeah, not no. on time if it comes at all. and all Water of is right. dirty. If it runs at all, the power comes on when it feels like it. Yeah. yeah. See that? Now, compare that, by the way. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm becoming too radical uh, because either I'm going nuts or things are becoming plain to me. Compare that to the young man in Indiana, Ohio. Where was it? Where was it? Indiana, Greenwood Mall, Indiana. Indiana. Fifteen seconds to respond. Hold that thought, Doctor Arn. Hold that thought. He didn't have any trouble making up his mind, did he? He did not, and that is a great salve. That is a great. Reminder that there are people like him everywhere. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is with us. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is here with a live appearance from Dr. Arn. Uh, it's midsummer. I wanted to catch up on some current events with Dr. Arn for the Hillsdale Dialogue. We will return to the ethics next week. Hero Eli. He is, uh, that's how I refer to Hero Eli. He rose from his position when a would-be killer who actually killed three innocent people, and he intended the killer to kill many, many more. He had 100 rounds. He could have taken at least 100 lives, and who knows, a panic. Uh, And Hero Eli rose from his place, took out his constitutionally carried concealed weapon, fired 10 shots, eight of which hit the target from a considerable distance, killing him. He's a hero. What do you draw from that, Dr. Art? Well, the key thing, uh, you know, I, I think one of the tasks for the American people going through this crisis, and 
determinative whether we can get it right is we have to understand how America used to work again. And my favorite description of it is in Democracy in America by Tocqueville. Uh, and it's not really the theoretical things he says about the influence of the principle of equality. What's cool is he describes how things actually work in townships, uh, where most people live and are governed and govern themselves. And he says that in Europe, if we see a public official, we think of him as a force. In America, we think of him as a right. In other words, that fellow works for us, yep. right? And he said, and because of that, he says, uh, when Americans see a public need, they never apply to anyone in the government to fix it. Instead, they uh, uh, form a committee and appoint themselves the head of it and go to work. No doubt this is not as efficient as a, as a bureaucratic system, but it can get so much more done. And the people learn how to govern themselves. Uh, so, you know, one of my, here in Hillsdale, Michigan, uh, it's a beautiful little town. Uh, uh, the fact that it gets cold in the winter keeps out the riffraff. And, and, uh, <laughs> cold is an understatement, but go ahead. <laughs> it's not cold. I mean, it's not really cold. Anyway, uh, it's, it's a low crime area. Uh, there's some crime here. And I am a constant force in the town to deputize volunteers to help the cops. And I always say, the, police, the chief of police is a good guy. I know him. I like him a lot, too. And I always say to him, and he's a little hesitant about this because there's liability and all that stuff. But I always say, it's very important that these people not be paid, right? They have to train. They have to meet standards. You can train them. Uh, he said once, well, it costs us money to train people. I said, good, I'll pay for it. <laughs> so yeah. It, uh, you know, and, and they have expanded their reserve officer force some because of this thing, right? In other words, what if everybody is in charge of enforcing the law? And then, and then what, what, what Tocqueville says is that that makes a change in a person. Yes. Because now they're civically responsible. That's why this exclusion from parents from schools is so offensive and dangerous. You, you know what, Larry? I, uh, the, the fetching Mrs. Hewitt asked me the day, when I'm finally retired. I mean, retired, retired. I'm no longer teaching at Chapman. I'm no longer doing this. What do I want to do? And I said, well, at that point, I will find a high school who will have me and I will coach the speech and debate team. And then she, we talked about it and it, it occurred to both of us. They might not let me. Uh, because I won't be credentialed and I might not be uh, an employee and I won't be allowed to volunteer. It never occurred to me that that wouldn't be possible. But what you've just articulated, the the natural reluctance of a law enforcement officer to have volunteers, that is throughout the public school system. They don't want the yeah. parents in. They don't want people to watch. And see that now. Now, let's think about our Aristotle since it's fresh in our minds. Right. Uh, one of the principles of Aristotle is. If a thing has a natural capacity to do a thing, it has a natural love of doing that thing. And that means that we human beings can govern ourselves, and we love to do it. And we love it. So, we're going to come back to this right after the break. We're going to talk about the San Diego Unified School District decision to reimpose masks 
and to tell students in summer school to go home if they won't wear them because it is just the epitome of everything that is wrong and maybe the turning point for everything that is right. Stay tuned, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest, president of Hillsdale College. Welcome back, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway this week. I am in Bain. Dr. Arn is in Michigan, and we have taken a break from Aristotle's Ethics, to which we will return next week. Uh, and it's been greeted by applause everywhere. I'm sorry I have to break in with you with reality, but so much is going on in the country. I wanted to talk to Dr. Arn about it. And Dr. Arn, a small thing that is big is that the San Diego Unified School District, which I know somewhat well, my, my boys when they were young would go down there and play water polo against La Jolla High School and things like that. Uh, it's a fine, fine uh, school district gone wrong. They reimposed this week by order of their board that, students put their masks back on and if they didn't want to they could just go home and they could learn on zoom and uh, there's no indication whether they intend to do this in the fall it appears that they uh, are driven by a metric that they blame the cdc for it's the most absurd thing i've seen in a long time it's absolutely stone cold stupid there is no excuse anymore a lot of people made a lot of mistakes especially in your state of michigan and we'll have a governor's election on that i hope it's a referendum on governor whitmer's administration of this but what do you make of school districts today when there is no case for masking of children, none, uh, uh, with this variant? There is no level of risk greater than any other. Getting on the highway, driving to school is riskier than COVID uh, in San Diego. What do you think is going on there? Well, if uh, institutions lose their discipline, it might be because they've forgotten their purpose. Right. We've been reading our Aristotle, right? Every action, every choice, every inquiry seems to aim at some good, and therefore it's been beautifully said that the good is that for which all things aim. What is the good that we're after in the schools? Students should learn and grow. And if their faces are covered up, they won't do it as well. You know, and that's not the, debatable. That is you don't not need debatable. to study, right? It's just, I mean, just look and think for a minute, right? And so you shouldn't do that unless you must. And, you know, there's just, there is no study that says that, you know, who cares about the studies? But there's no study that says that school children wearing masks has any noticeable effect. There, there is one study, because I always find the best argument. The best argument was made by an NIH study during Delta, during Delta, mind you, uh, not Omicron, that said in the unmasked schools there were uh, 26 cases per 100 among students, and in the masked schools there were only seven. That was their conclusion. That study means nothing, because they did not talk about the cost of masking or its applicability to Omicron or the intervening therapeutic developments. Moreover, it never addressed what nature of illness do children get, which is very minimal, very minimal. And there is no argument for masks in school. None, zero, zip. It's an incoherent argument. But they're doing it, Larry Arndt. Yeah. Why in the I, world are they doing it? Well, because they can, and because compliance is satisfying to those who command it. 
I mean, I think I think there's a spirit in there, right? Yes. I mean, in, in, so well in the summer of 2000, Vice President Pence, the lamented former great Vice President, now we got another one, uh, he... He formed a task force of college presidents, which I happen to be. Summer of 2020, not 2000, 2020. Okay. 2020, yeah. And the subject we were to talk about was going back to school. And I had been working urgently on that question. And, you know, there were 14 college presidents counting me. And every one of them except me, every time he's asking to go back to school, stated a need for money from the government. And I didn't. And he said, wow. are you thinking about having in-person classes in the fall? And I said, no, sir, I am not. He said, you're not thinking about it. And I said, no, it's August 23rd. And if anybody tries to stop us, we're going to sue them. <laughs> and, you know, that was like a rude thing to say at a party. But he liked it. And then I looked at Deborah Burks, who was sitting there with her mask on, on a Zoom call, and I said, Dr. Burks, is this disease dangerous to the young? And I was waiting for her to give me a thesis. All she said was, no. Oh! And I said, there's your answer. There's right? your answer. Because I've been working on this for a month now, figuring out how to have school, and I can figure out everything except the young, because they're not, you know, they're immortal, right? They're not afraid of this. They shouldn't be, I don't think. But it'll be very hard to make them afraid, even if they should be. And so how are you going to keep them? And they live in dormitories, for goodness sake. How are you going to keep them apart? And well, some who are attracted to each other find nooks and crannies in which to snog, as they say in Harry Potter. So they're going to go. get together. That's right. And so you can't, you know, and so if, if, if their lives depend on you stopping that... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I used to say in the middle of this, better for them to die at home. <laughs> but, you know, that's just human nature. What did you say yeah. Lincoln said? Uh, if you push it out the front door, it comes in the back door. Isn't that that's what? right. That's right. And see, they're not. And, you know, but once you know, and so then, then I just added one other device. And that is. I decided not to try to figure out who's vulnerable and who's not. I just said anybody who feels vulnerable, feels vulnerable. This is entirely subjective status. You may work or study from home. Yes. And, yes, and, and San Diego Unified School District could do that, and I would never have mentioned them on my show instead of berating them for a week. We have these uh, medical doctors from a fancy place. I won't say it on the radio. It's one of the great medical institutions in America. And there's a bunch of really great guys there and, and girls, and they work in this place, and they, their kids come to Hillsdale College. And this place was very conservative about the virus. And so he said, I'm kind of worried about your policies. And I said, yeah, me too. And he said, uh, I don't want my daughter to come back. And I said, what does she want? And he said, uh -huh. well, she wants to come back. And I said, Doc, are you calling me for family counseling? <laughs> you know? Oh, I'll bet he did not like that. <laughs> well, he's a good guy. He wasn't upset with me. But, you know, she is the one student who stayed home for a semester. And he made her do that. And he, he said to me, he said, if I do that, she's going to have a grievance against me for, the, for years. And I said, yeah, I'm confident yeah. you're correct about that. 
and she does. <laughs> you and know, she does. but and and see, we had how you know we had the NCAA, the worst organization in America. Uh, I'm going to make an argument with you that Yale University is displaced, but go ahead. Yeah, okay. Well, there's, you know, the... The, the competition uh, the is fierce. pole of evil is crowded yeah. at the top. The competition is fierce for worst organization in America. Yeah. Anyway, the NCAA makes you test your players. And so we had, you know, I wouldn't have tested them. I, I, I didn't compel anybody to get a test except under, you know, direct... Uh, threat of execution. Uh, and and so most of our cases that we know of are among athletes. And they are very many, right? I mean, we had hundreds of cases. And nobody was hurt, right? And that was the overwhelming likelihood. Now, somebody might have died. Of course, somebody might have died. But the point is, shall I inflict the direct and definite harm of disrupting their college education on a small chance, which is also, by the way, very difficult to quantify, that they will be harmed. And our parents here, they're like Spartan mothers and dads, right? So once somebody said at a parents' weekend meeting, you know, there are 900 parents in the room, I'm talking to them, and they were so proud of the college for having school. And somebody said, one, a mother said, aren't you worried that one of them will die? And I said, yeah, of course I am. And, you know, it's safer for me to keep them home. That's it. That's it. But, but who, for whom does my authority exist? And, and, uh, and that, you know, that, so, and then, you know, toward the end, I said, anyway, just remember the great rule. If one of them dies, we can get more. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, and I want to go backwards, though. It's safer for you. It would have been safer for you to go to the Pence meeting and ask for more money. It would have been safer for you not to quarrel with the NCAA. It would have been safer for you never to quarrel with the government of Michigan at any level. Uh, safe wins for people who are more concerned about themselves than others or more concerned about their own career than their mission. That's it. And that's, you know, there's a premium on that now, right? And so if you want, I mean, you know, I, I have the best job in the world. Uh, the only disadvantage it has compared to your job is that I have to work. Yes, that, there is a huge advantage, though, in not working and being paid for talking to people. That's a, actually a great advantage. Yeah, that's right. So you may have the best job. But if uh, what's great about the job? Well, first of all, it's an inspiring thing to undertake, right? It's a wonderful thing to do and a hard thing to do and an ennobling thing to do, right? And the second thing is at Hillsdale College, by the grace of God, we get to do it. That is to say, go at the problem directly. Uh, you know what? Right, right now, uh, uh, I, I feel like a cavalry commander standing at the gate of a top the gate of the fort, watching refugees stream toward our fort. Oh, I have a better analogy. A couple of weeks Everybody ago, I was outside of Joshua Chamberlain's house on the campus of Bowdoin College. 
and Joshua Chamberlain was at the end of the Union line on Little Round Top, and they were out of ammunition. <laughs> and the Confederates were coming up the hill, so he said, fix bayonets and charge. And it really wasn't a very fine military maneuver, but by God, it worked. Yeah. And that, you know, mostly it's uh, colleges are mostly not good places to work anymore. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the broke ones, which is most of them, they have all the problems of being broke. And the rich ones, they're at each other's throats all the time now. They've lost all know, courage. I want to come back and conclude on that. Don't go anywhere, America. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. Go to hillsdale.eu for all things Hillsdale. Go to HughForHillsdale.com for all the Hillsdale dialogues. And if you haven't applied yet, you'd better hurry up because you're going to fill up in a hurry this year because they're wa- they're the lantern of the north, but they're one of the few lanterns left in America, and they're the best and the brightest. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Dr. Larry Arn is with me. Dr. Arn, I mentioned... Uh, Joshua Chamberlain was president of Bowdoin College, and and uh, uh, you are now the president of a college up north, uh, and uh, Bowdoin probably had a worse winter than Hillsdale does. Are you not overrun with applications? Have people not figured out that it's the last lantern uh, and, and the brightest lantern? I mean, there's some other places fine that you can go to, but, but Hillsdale is it. Are you just swamped in applications and phone calls begging you to let their kids in? Yeah, it's unbelievable. And uh, and it's great, right? And I can't... So lately, we've taken to calculating this problem. You know, the question is, how many can we take? Last year, we admitted this. The class is coming next month. We admitted 17% of the applicants. Jeez. <laughs> and, and so we'd like to take more. How many can we take? And, you know, and remain what we are. And we think that there's a limit in nature. That is to say, it won't be the same kind of thing anymore if it passes a certain population. Because it's, it's like what uh, Aristotle says about the ancient city. It can't be bigger than that everybody knows everybody or knows somebody who knows everybody. And so maybe that number is 30% more. Maybe it's 50% more. But it's not... A lot more than that. And so we're building a dormitory. Built one last year, too. Who's it named we're for? Building a, what? Who's the new one named for? Uh, Can you tell you me? It. And, th- and thank you for that 10 minutes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I wish. But I want people to know, uh, all my friends listening, if you're writing checks to university, stop and send it to Hillsdale. Because uh, it's wasted. If you're, I, I haven't sent a dime to Harvard in 20 years, and I won't. Uh, and Yale is worse. Don't waste your money. Send it to Hillsdale, where they're building dorms. But I want you to get good donors. But go on. We're you were bu- saying, and we're building um, a big classroom building, right? And those are, the, and we're going to have to expand the dining hall, and then the college can get a bit bigger. And you got to hire good faculty. Well, that's you know we're all over that, and and the choices are just like the choices for students are much better than they've ever been. The choices for faculty members. I mean. There's a great guy, I won't say his name, but he teaches at a fancy East Coast university, and he's an East Coast guy, and he wrote me a thank you letter. We, we gave him dinner. He's got a lot of friends here, 
And, and uh, I had said to him, I say it all the time, I'd say, well, if you ever want to go into make, it, make an honest living, talk to us. And that's what he, the conversation he opened in his thank you letter. Yeah, I might leave that fancy place because I can't bear it anymore. And that's, you know, that, and see, it takes from you, just remember, injustice saps the life out of everything that's touched by it. Back to the ethics, which we are interrupting. If you do that, what you are intended to do, you will experience joy. And if you are forbidden from doing that, the opposite of joy is what? Despair? Well, it's, uh, yeah, that's right. And uh, the opposite of joy is rebellion. Rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> You're right about that, too. Uh, to, that, that brings me to Michigan's gubernatorial election. Now, there were some, because there are too many obstacles to getting on the ballot, too many people did not get on the ballot, and uh, the Republican primary is thus screwed up. Have you a favorite? Um, have you declared one? And will either of those who remain as viable candidates be able to beat Whitmer? Governor Whitmer may be the worst governor in, in America right now. Well, fundamental things are afoot. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember who the candidates are. The one that I hear the most good about. Can I say this? I mean, you can. You're not endorsing. I don't, I, I don't want to be taken. I, I haven't met the woman, but I hear that this woman named Tudor Dixon. Is that her name? Tudor Dixon. I don't know. I don't know anything about I just know they're down to uh, two. Yeah, okay. Who are the two? Uh, the guy uh, businessman did very well in a clip I saw, and I've heard of Tudor Dixon's name. Kevin but I would Rink. Not... I know him. Yeah, Rink. That's it. And Rink and Dixon and he, are the two who guy. are left. Yeah. He was just saying nice things about Hillsdale College somewhere that I saw today. Yeah, so I, I'm advised that if, if it's down to those, truly down to those two, that they're both pretty good. And Rink, I know. And they could beat Whitmer. See, this is the key. They got to win, as Mitch McConnell likes to say, and I love to hear this. First, you got to win. Yeah. Well, uh, it uh, you have to have the gumption to run a plain campaign, and you have to have the artfulness too, because the deep issues that are pending in America, I think most people agree with you and me about. Yep, I agree. But. Making them plain is hard, and you have to you have to slog through the mud. And, and the legacy pain. media is devoted to not having that conversation. That's right, Doctor Larry Arn. I'm sorry to disturb your repose during the summer months, upon which you were on a hammock reading Tocqueville and playing with your dogs in Charlotte and the other newbie. But uh, thank you for getting up and talking. We'll be back with The Ethics next week, and then Dr. Arn will be back on a more regular basis come September. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.